0: Well, we've been in this series throughout the Advent season on this pilgrimage that is leading up to the Christmas story. A story, a time of the year in which has much hope and celebration and promise. We've seen those things, celebration, promise and hope, birth into the world with the birth of Jesus. Jesus who was and is the tangible actualization of of God's heart invites us to follow him deeper into God's kingdom and into God's heart through living what we've called the Holy Way. Our series, The Holy Way, has been an invitation to explore the heart of God and how we may partner with God and what he's still doing through the Christmas story today. Help if I have my remote with me. Throughout this series, we've been reflecting on ways that we can see what it means to walk out or walk in the way of God's heart within our neighborhoods and our spheres of influence. The first week as we gathered we looked at this idea that God's Christmas gift brought peace. The second week we found that through the Christmas story there is a plan in God's heart for harmony. The third week we looked at how the Christmas story has brought this promise of God's healing. If you've missed one of those weeks, I encourage you to find them on iTunes or on our website. They are worth listening to. I've enjoyed this series so far, and I hope you have as well. And this morning, as we go into our fourth Advent series, uh, we will be looking at the longing for restoration. This week, we explore a reflection of... On this idea of longing for restoration. This morning we are going to find out that the time leading up to the birth of Jesus was far from Mary, but rather a time of longing for restoration and defined by fears and hopes. You know, at Christmas time we like to say that it reminds us that all is and can be right in the world. Have you heard people say that? It is a time in which we expect it to be merry, and we expect it to be bright. Our schedules are getting busier, and as we get closer to the holiday, it seems that our schedules and everything in life begins to revolve around this holiday of Christmas. As students begin to travel home from college, as families begin to travel closer to their other family to be with them, and as presents are given we begin to reflect on what blessings we do have. In fact, we sing in deck the halls, "'Tis the season to be jolly." In his book, A Christmas Tree, Charles Dickens reflects, I remember as a kid at Christmas, there was everything and more. In the song White Christmas, we sing, and bless that may all of your days be merry and bright. Christmas has grown to be decorated, to be celebrated, to be colorful, to be traditional, to be animated, to be merry, bright, festive, and loud. But this was not the reality of that very first Christmas. In fact, in the days of that first Christmas, it wasn't celebrating what they did have, but actually lamenting what they did not have. In fact, they didn't find themselves with such a joy to revolve their schedules around. What they were busy doing was surviving. We reflect on this very reality when we sing the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. We say, yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and the fears of all of the years are met in thee tonight. Hopes and fears. This is the reality of that very first Christmas. It wasn't festive. It wasn't merry. It wasn't bright. It was a time defined by looking for hope, holding on to whatever hope you had in the midst of a really foggy time, in the midst of a really depressing, scary time. God's chosen people had endured anything but a glorious path up to this point in their story. In fact, you might have said it's been a journey through fear. The few-thousand-year journey of God's people to this point has been one of losing their identity time and time again. And as a result, they lost the presence of God, they lost their home more than once, and they lived in exile more than once. And then they were struggling to find it again under Roman occupation. Jerusalem and Judea, the north and south kingdoms of Israel, decided to go about their own ways, some thousand years ago. Despite many warnings that God gave them through his prophets, they didn't listen and they continued to walk down their own path. As a result, we see God begins to allow things to affect them. and He even removes his presence from them. And then he allows both Jerusalem and Judea to be attacked and led into captivity over several years of sieges by force by both the Assyrians and then the onslaughts that would come from the oppressive Babylonian Empire. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah in his book Lamentations reflects on what it felt like to watch the presence of God removed from them, their identity attacked, their identity lost, and to be forced into exile. He writes in Lamentations 2.9-11, Her gates have sunk into the ground. Her gates, meaning his holy city, the city of God's people. Their bars have been broken and destroyed. Her king and her princes are exiled among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets no longer find visions from God. The presence of God has been removed. The elders, those daughter, the elders. Of daughters, Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. Now listen to what Jeremiah says here. He says, "My eyes fail from weeping, not merry and bright. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my children are destroyed." Because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. The hearts of people cry out to the Lord, You walls of daughter of Zion, let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. He goes on. Arise, cry out in the night as watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands for him for the lives of your children who faints from hunger on every street corner. This is the reality of what God's people had endured in captivity. And these words, this idea of of lamenting would have been very close to the heart of people once again Here in the Christmas story. Though they had finally come into their own. They had finally returned home. And they received their own identity. And they had become a nation again. They were now being occupied by Rome. And once again they felt the presence of God absent. Jeremiah's words and lamentations would have been very close to the expressions that would have been on the heart of people once again in this time frame. But they had hope. Hope wasn't lost. It was just a far-off idea. It wasn't lit up and writ up on every Christmas, on every store and in every aisle and on every home, It was buried deep inside their heart, and they sought for it at any chance that they could find. Those lamenting words from their years in captivity were close to their hearts because they had yet again become administrated, ruled and occupied by the growing oppressive Roman Empire. And though God was once again seemingly silent and absent, they had totally not lost sight of all hope. They held to the words of ancient prophets like Isaiah. They saw the prophecies that Isaiah once had that came from God and that came true and spoke to them about receiving their land back and receiving their identity back. And they watched them unfold and come true. And they longed with hope and great anticipation and expectation to see the rest of Isaiah's prophecies come true too. And the rest of Isaiah's prophecies had to do with the coming day of the Lord, these messianic prophecies prophecies, these predictions of what it would look like when the Messiah came. When the blessing would be poured out on them, the Messiah would restore them. Their hope was in this coming day for restoration, to be restored. They hoped and longed for the restoration of God's presence on them. They would have anchored their hope in passages from Isaiah. There's many passages from Isaiah in which they would have anchored their hope. And this morning I'm going to reference just one of those, and that's Isaiah 42, in which Isaiah is talking about the coming of the Messiah and what God wants to do in the midst of it. In Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, he says this, and this is God speaking through Isaiah, and Isaiah recording it as a prophet. He says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged to establish his justice on earth. In his teaching the islands will put their hope. Hope and fears. For a long time, this is God speaking, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and I've held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out. I gasp and pant. I will lay waste to the mountains and the hills and dry up all of their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things that I will do, and I will not forsake them. I will not forsake my people. That promise they held on to was this passage in particular. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and I've held myself back, but now like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp, and pant. Therein lies the Christmas hope that a birth would come that would restore the presence of God. I love this idea of God saying, I had to hold myself back. I I had to keep silence. It shows that There was great purpose to his silence. There was great purpose to his seemingly absent way. But at the heart of God is this deep yearning sense, this deep yearning desire to be present with his creation. I wanted to speak to them, but I had to hold myself back. Do you hear God's voice to Isaiah there? I love this because he's also hinting at the Christmas story, though I'm not sure that Isaiah got it yet. I'm not sure that the Jewish people, as they were holding to this passage with hope, was realizing that God's also given them a tongue-in-cheek, like, I'm actually going to bring the Messiah through a baby. He's saying, I am going to break my silence. That is the hope. They see this longing for restoration. They hold that as hope that God has promised he's going to break his silence. He's promised Isaiah things before, and they've come true. Once again, I'm holding on to this promise that Isaiah says God is going to break his silence, and we long deeply for restoration. Their hope was in God's promise to break his silence and bring restoration. Isaiah gave this hope of restoration many times in his messianic prophecies. He gave them on and on again through his prophetic ministry. Early on, one of his first prophecies that he ever received corresponded with this one as well. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and I will call him Emmanuel, or God with us. The presence of God has been removed. The hope is that it will be restored. And Isaiah's promise is that you will get a Messiah named Emmanuel, which means God with us. The presence has come back. That is the longing that they are waiting for. That restoration was a reconnection to the presence of God. That God would be with them. In fact, As we begin to read the New Testament accounts of the Christmas story, as we begin to reflect on it with our families and our devotions throughout the week, as we begin to scour Matthew, hopefully, in Luke 1 and 2, we begin to read the Christmas story. And one of the first things that we see if we look is that the Christmas story reconnects with this prophecy from Isaiah some time ago. In fact, as Matthew tells it, in Matthew 1:18, if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open to this part with me. Matthew 1:18 through24. I'll give you a second to find it. Matthew 1:18 through24. When Matthew goes to tell the Christmas story, the very thing in which he points out, the very thing in which he wants to connect with is this promise from Isaiah hundreds of years before. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph was her husband and was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in her mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The prophet. There was only one prophet in which they cling to with such great hope, and that prophet was Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You're longing for restoration. Guys, this is the beginning of the restoration. That thing Isaiah promised way before your lifetime is now coming true. The presence of God is going to be restored. It's important to notice the way that Matthew really wants us to get this. It's also important to realize that God's restoration did not make everything merry and bright, but it restored God's presence with both power and a real sense of hope. Slavery did not end overnight. Occupation of the Roman Empire did not end overnight. Oppression, violence, battles, they did not end overnight. Disease did not end overnight. The existence and the need for death did not end overnight. It's Still not the huge blessing they were waiting for. But God's restoration, though it did not make everything merry and bright, restored God's presence with both power and hope. As we look at the Christmas season, and as we develop these rhythms around it, we need to see that Christmas is a reminder that... Despite life's difficulties, and sometimes seemingly God's silence, God has invested in us a powerful and hopeful presence. And when I say in us, I mean in us. That we bring that to each other. Christmas is a reminder that despite life's difficulties and God's silence, God has invested in us, his people, his powerful and hopeful presence. It's amazing to think how far Christmas has come if you think about it. It's a very story that we could overlook, that we could forget very easily if it didn't have such long implications. Let me break it down. An unwed mother to a poor family in a time where that is even more looked down upon than now, in a time of an oppressive government squashing the identity of a people gives birth to a boy that is so poor that they don't even have a place to give birth in. That is an easily overlooked story. It happens in our time 100 times a day. Though not everyone believes in a Christmas story today, the way that it first was launched, the way that we do their schedule still revolved, their year still revolves around this one day because of that one thing that happened so long ago. That is crazy to think about. That God did this thing in an easily overlooked story that was so powerful that it restored his presence in a way that thousands of years later still has implications to the world in which we live. That's why I love this Christmas story. It begs for us to creatively walk out the reality of God with us to each other, to our neighbors, and to our spheres of influence. I invite you to enjoy your celebrations, your traditions, the way you make things merry and bright. I love driving around the neighborhood and seeing the lights. I love decorating. I love joining you in caroling. And I love the season of good cheer. But these things aren't Christmas. And let us not lose sight of Christmas in them. Actually, long before the birth of Christmas, the Romans had a festival of tribute to one of their gods, Satona, that they celebrated from December 17th to the 23rd. And then on December 25th, they celebrated what was called the Festival of the Unconquered Sun. Not sun as in someone you give birth to, but. The sun that burns in the sky. It's also the first day of winter solstice. And in many traditions, there were already celebrations that were happening. The Teutons in northern Europe, during this same time frame, celebrated the festival of Yule. The Druids, in this time of year, decorated their homes and sacred places with holly and ivy, if you've wondered where that came from. Because they saw it as magical because it kept its green and its fruit in the winter. And nothing keeps its green or its fruit in the winter. Carols originated in the region of France from balladers that would sit in street corners and sing sad songs, dirges, and they would also dance when they sang them. It's kind of an oxymoron that someone would sing a sad song and dance at the same time, right? It wasn't until Pope Julius I to put them all together. And do you know why he did it? He did it because he was creatively trying to reclaim, repurpose, and absorb all these other pagan festivals into the celebration of Christ's birthday to help tell the Christmas story. Was it right? Was it wrong? I don't know. Did we get some baggage along the way? Yes, we did. Did we uh, call a whole bunch of things Christmas that really weren't? Yes. In fact, now we, we often refer that we hang greens because the, the berries represent the blood of Christ. These are things that have happened after the effect. But what he did was creatively try to walk out the reality of God with us to each other, to our neighbors and our spheres of influence. And it continues to affect the world in which we live. These things are beautiful and they're fun, but they are not Christmas. Christmas is the celebration of God breaking His silence. Something he promised he would do a long, long time ago. Let us not lose sight of that in the midst of everything else. Let us, too, find creative ways to absorb what is around us, to be aware of what is around us this time of the year, and use it to help us tell the Christmas story to our neighbors. Let us creatively walk out the reality of God with us to each other, to our neighbors and to our spheres of influence. Knowing how to do that begins with really just identifying somebody that you feel God has called you to relate to and asking God, how do I? It's a really easy question. God, I love that person. I know you've called me to love that person. How do I show them God with us? How do I show them what it means that you are here and that your presence is present? Second big takeaway that I think this story tells us is that let us live with the hopeful expectancy <clears throat> excuse me, and knowledge that God breaks his silence and restores his presence after seasons of exile. Perhaps you're in a rough season this morning, a season that feels like exile. Well, expect, anticipate, push on. God's people are on that same journey at this point in the story. Let us live with the hopeful expectancy that knowledge that God breaks his silence and restores his presence after seasons of exile. In many ways, this season is a season of hopes and fears for us as well. But the promise is that God's heart, at the heart of God, he yearns to break his silence and to be present with his people. Sometimes we forget the simplicity of the Christmas story in the the mix. And there's lots of simple takeaways from it, and that's what we've been looking at each week. But we get in this mix of all the things that we've added to it and the ways we celebrate it, and we forget that it wasn't so merry and bright. And just this small glimpse of hope that God had brought back his presence changed the world so much that even today, our secular cultures revolve around this one holiday. That is cool. As we get closer to the Christmas season, I leave you with these two quotes that remind us how we may walk out this reality of God with us to our neighbors, to our spheres of influence, to each other. This one comes from Charles Dickens. He says, Near and closer to the hearts, the Christmas spirit, which is the spirit of active usefulness, perseverance, cheerful discharge of duty, kindness, and forbearance. And John Henry, known as Cardinal Newman, wrote this, May each Christmas as it comes find us more and more like him who at this time became a little child for our sake, more simple-minded, more humble, more affectionate, more resigned, more happy, and more full of God. The thing that needs to ooze from us as the worship team, comes as Jonathan comes back up, is that we live with a great hope that God has broke his silence, that he has restored his presence, and through his Holy Spirit, that continues today. Do we ooze with that? Does that just ooze from us, that, that we live and we smell and, we, and we, we just look like we carry the presence of God with us to our neighbors? Because, folks, that's what changed that ghetto into a life-changing event. When shepherds and magi, two ends of the spectrum, two people that would have not even been from the same cultural backgrounds came together and, and worshipped the same Messiah. The thing that brought them together was this oozing from that scene of the presence of God. That God, Emmanuel, God was with us. Does that ooze from us?